Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Special Spotlight. We need to really pay attention to what we're able to do with COVID and AIDS and, and do the same thing also with cancer. Today, Dr. David J. Stewart, an oncologist at the University of Ottawa, joins the podcast to discuss topics in cancer, as well as his new book in this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me on the podcast today is Dr. David J. Stewart. Dr. Stewart is a professor of medicine at the University of Ottawa. He is also the division head for the Division of Medical Oncology at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Center, Ottawa. Dr. Stewart, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. So can you describe your clinical practice setting and, and scope of your practice? Uh, so I'm a medical oncologist, uh, and uh, now I treat uh, only lung cancer. Uh, years ago, we used to treat everything, but as, mm-hmm. um, as it became more and more specialized, um, and as more and more people joined, actually cut it down to that. I've practiced in both uh, Canada and the United States. Uh, I did medical school in Canada and uh, internal medicine, uh, then medical oncology training at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston. I was on staff there for a couple of years, came back up here for 23 years, then back down to MD Anderson um, in, uh, uh, again for another eight years, and then back up in Ottawa, Canada now since uh, 2011. Wow, that's a, a well-worn pathway there. So I'm always interested in others' path into medicine. Can you share how you knew at some point in your life you wanted to go into medicine? Uh, well, I, I always tell people it was, uh, when I was in elementary school and my uh, uh, teacher told me my writing was so bad that I wanted <laughs> to be a doctor. <laughs> but uh, no, there are many things that, uh, that I, I, I might have uh, been interested in doing, but uh, ultimately I just uh, liked the idea of medicine because it was uh, something that was intellectually challenging and something that you could help people with. Okay. And, and if I may, why oncology? I know that you know, we're exposed to all the specialties when we're in medical school and in, in our you know, training. Why oncology, sir? Uh, so that um, in a fourth year medical school, uh, in our clinical clerkship, we had uh, 10 week rotations and uh, my uh, internal medicine one was on uh, hematology oncology. And the, and the two um, uh, staff people were absolutely phenomenal teachers. And uh, so that was really it. just the, the, them as individuals, as people, and uh, just the teaching that they, they did and the support. Uh, also, um, at that time, uh, it was fairly early in the days of chemotherapy. And I remember um, uh, being uh, seeing a patient and uh, giving them uh, the drug, uh, the new drug, uh, adriamycin, and then coming back three weeks later, and the chest X-ray showing that the tumor had shrunk markedly, and it was like a, in a video game where you shoot the bad guys and see it watch it disintegrate. Uh, just the secondary and reinforcement of watching tumor shrink, and also how much better the patient felt uh, because of that. So it was the those very early experiences in uh, in medical school were, that were absolutely key. Yeah, I actually have a mentor that I remember. I mean, I went into emergency medicine, but the, one of the, the best attendings I had was an oncologist who, aside from just the nuts and bolts of oncology, you know, I think that when you deal with folks, uh, you know, day in and day out, you know, in sort of a life and death situation, there comes a deepness of a relationship that oftentimes comes with oncologists with their patients. And he passed on a couple of things that even though I no longer practice, I still use, you know, in my daily life, like don't do something if you're not going to act on the results. So, I mean, that that was some of the great wisdom that I got from him. So Ottawa to Houston and Houston to Ottawa, that must have been someone who grew up in the Great White North, quite an experience. I was actually in Houston for a couple of years before I went to medical school in, in Fort Worth, Texas, and I'm from Massachusetts. So a bit of a culture shock? 
Uh, yeah, very much of a culture shock and uh, very much of a, of a weather shock. But as I tell people, I'd much rather shovel snow after a blizzard than water after a hurricane. Um, and if it's a very, very cold out, you can put on more clothes. Uh, if it's very hot out, there's only so much you can do. But um, uh, but also, they, I mean, the, the people in Texas, they were absolutely phenomenal people. Uh, but they did look at uh, life very much uh, in a very much different way than um, in Canada. There's no right or wrong. Or no wrong. It's just that, uh, that yes, it's culturally, it's different. And, and many people do look at, uh, at life quite a bit differently. Yeah, and I noticed that in your faculty bio that you're sort of focused more on advanced lung cancer and also sort of looking at the arc of your career. When you were first getting into oncology, those were some heady times, as, as you alluded to. And then from there to here, especially with the introduction of some of the immunotherapies, it must be, you know, much like I think our grandparents or maybe, you know, our relatives generation when you went from sort of horse and buggy now to, you know, vehicles that are can go 120 miles an hour. Uh, yeah, so things have changed radically. Uh, of course, uh, never fast enough, and there's always so much more we wish we could do, uh, but so much better now than uh, than uh, what it used to be. So I talk in the book about uh, uh, my mentor, uh, the late uh, MLJ Freireich, and uh, one of Freireich's laws was the only people who come close to predicting the future are the science fiction writers, and they always underpredict rather than overpredicting. And when he told us that back in 1976, none of us thought we'd be walking around with phones in our pocket or that uh, right. we would no longer need a map because a, a computer in our car would be talking to a satellite. And it's very much the same in, uh, in oncology, that um, uh, the things have just keep on changing incredibly rapidly. And, um, and so that we can just do so much more for patients now than what we used to be able to do. You bring up your book and I wanted to sort of jump into there. So you recently published a book entitled A Short Primer on Why Cancer Sucks. So my first question, and we're sort of going into it, you know, bit by bit here, is that what motivated you to write this book? Uh, well, I first told my wife 20 years ago I was going to write it for patients uh, because my patients are always have um, a lot of questions, a lot of concerns. And uh, what I was always struck by was that the more they understood, the better they were able to cope with things. So patients have often told me that um, uh, bad news is much better than uncertainty. If you've got bad news, then you can uh, figure out what you have to do with it and you can cope with it. If you just don't know, then that's that's incredibly unsettling and that makes it very difficult uh, to make uh, decisions. Uh, and so that I, I found that the more I taught my patients, the more I told them, uh, that the, the more appreciative they were and also the better they were able to cope. Uh, so that was the, the first thing. The other, though, was also to draw attention to the systems issues that uh, plague us worldwide. Uh, uh, so that it takes much too long to uh, uh, to bring new anti-cancer drugs from discovery to uh, to uh, market uh, where they can actually be given to people. They cost way too much, and there are very specific reasons that they cost so much, and very specific things we can do to reduce that. But also in healthcare systems, uh, that uh, the Canadian system and the American system are, are very different. They both have strengths and um, and weaknesses. And as I said in the book, um, I love them both and I hate them both, uh, but I love them for different reasons. I hate them for different reasons. They, they both um, have strengths and weaknesses that, um, that are a lot different. And um, and overall, uh, I think we need to do much better than we, we have been doing uh, across the spectrum from drug discovery to um, to drug costs to, uh, to provision of healthcare. And we've got the capability of doing that, but we need to we need to really make this higher, higher priority. Okay. And you alluded to some part of the audience, but looking at the forward and, and reading a few chapters, you know, who is the audience for this book? Is it one specific group or are there a couple of different groups? Uh, so that it's, it's actually uh, anybody who's been touched by cancer. Okay. And of course, cancer is so incredibly common now that um, uh, like in Canada, it's uh, 49% of all males and 45% of all females who, um, who get it. In the United States, it's somewhat less than that, but, uh, but not that much less. 
And uh, so that uh, so many people have either either had it or have 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 had a loved one with it. Uh, so it uh, it was intended to uh, to uh, uh, teach those people, but also trainees as well, or people, healthcare uh, professionals who are not in oncology, to give them a better understanding of, of cancer and, and why it's so important to do things right in cancer, to get um, the diagnosis right, to get the treatment right, and to move quickly, uh, but to, uh, and also to just give them a better understanding of it. Uh, but also uh, decision makers, um, uh, the right. people that are responsible for uh, for uh, how long it takes to get uh, drugs developed, and uh, and uh, and also to uh, for healthcare resources, uh, it, that they were another audience um, that um, uh, it, it was very important to hit. And in fact, uh, I'll be giving a free copy of the book uh, to all Canadian members of Parliament and all Canadian senators and all of the uh, members of the uh, provincial legislative assembly in uh, in Ontario. Uh, just to help draw attention to the things that, that uh, we need to do better about uh, delivering care. And, and so I would assume that the PM is also going to get a copy as well. Now, maybe you'll be lucky enough and be able to give it to him in person. I wanted to tease out a few things about the different chapters, more so at the end, the slow progress chapters. And, and the first headline is, there's no true villains. But I wanted you, if you could, just for a few minutes, sort of tease out the points about slow progress and, and the snags that you see in there. Well, as I point out, the the road to uh, to finding a new treatment for uh, lung cancer is like a, a a highway with a thousand speed bumps, and every one of the speed bumps is there for a reason. It's because something went wrong at some point, and it's like you've got um, a a highway with um, a high traffic fatality rate, a lot of people dying, and you want to um, to uh, bring down the, the death rate. So he starts putting in speed bumps. You get the speed limit down to five miles an hour, and you've almost eradicated all the deaths from the traffic accidents. But you've also greatly slowed progress, and and so this is this is the huge problem. And uh, so what I point out is that it has to be more like the autobahn in Germany, which has large sections of unlimited speed limits where you can go drive just as fast as you want to, uh, and uh, and yet they've got one of the lowest traffic fatality rates in Europe because they've got smart regulation. Uh, and so we really need to take all these things that have been put there uh, for safety and data integrity and patient um, uh, privacy and all those other things that are so essential, but we have to um, put them in a form uh, that permits rapid progress, that um, uh, that uh, that not, is no longer an impediment, uh, but it's just something that, um, that, um, uh, that we have to uh, pay attention to, uh, but that does not uh, slow things down uh, so much. Because as I pointed out in the, in the book, uh, safety kills. Uh, the fact that it takes so long to get these effective new treatments, uh, thousands upon thousands of life years are lost uh, because an effective drug, uh, because it takes longer to get uh, that drug to patients. And uh, and so people will say, well, that uh, there's no way to fix it, but there is. And we proved that it was. Uh, we proved it twice that there was. Uh, right. First with AIDS, uh, where with the uh, with the treatment of AIDS, uh, suddenly things accelerated because people demanded it. And we proved that we could do it. And then with COVID, right. uh, because before COVID vaccine, uh, the fastest vaccine that ever came to market was four years from months vaccine, and made them were 10 or 12 years or more. And with COVID, we brought it down to one year. So that proves that we can do it, we can do it safely. We just need to give the same sort of priority uh, to, um, to therapies for all life-threatening diseases, um, including cancer, but also many other things. So we, we have to make speed uh, a very high priority. And we can do it. It is essential that we do it. And exactly the same things that make things faster will also bring down costs as well, right. because it's exactly the same things 
uh, that slow things down, that also massively drive up the cost of uh, clinical research and therefore also drive up the cost of new drugs. So it's apropos that I have you on the podcast um, within you know a week or two of President Biden's cancer moonshot. From your standpoint, having written the book and also as a practicing oncologist, what did you think of that announcement? So I think it's important because it means that he's paying attention. He's got uh, personal um, uh, reasons for doing it right. with his son. Uh, but um, so I think it's very, very important. Uh, and uh, but I, th I think it, it, uh, we really have to look at everything that's slowing us down and everything we need to do uh, to uh, speed us up. And the number one thing that we have to do is just prioritize. Uh, we just have to say speed is absolutely essential. This is going to be a very, very high priority and making things cheaper is a very, very high priority. And, and uh, as soon as we do that, uh, then suddenly we start looking at things differently and that becomes important. So I, I strongly I strongly back what he's done, and, but I think we can go a lot further and we need right. to go a lot further. And again, we need to uh, really pay attention to what we're able to do with COVID and AIDS and, and do the same thing also with cancer. Right. It reminds me of it. And in recently, I've had several different specialists on the podcast who have talked about legislation. And the biggest disconnect becomes someone who has no idea what's going on in the field is writing policy or legislation. And I think the most important thing, and I think what I hear you saying is, is that we need people who understand where the roadblocks and so forth are involved in creating policy, you know, and sort of streamlining it. I will also say I had a specialist on an infectious disease specialist, Dr. Robert Wall, who totally agreed with you. He's been he was working in HIV. And in light of what we've done with the RNA vaccines in COVID, he's like, OK, why aren't we now, you know, going as fast when we can get a vaccine for HIV or, you know, there are some vaccines for oncology as well. Yep. Uh, no question that um, that uh, uh, so, and we have to look at all the things that slow us down. And uh, I mean, bottom line is everybody's concerned that something will go wrong if we go fast. But the huge things are going wrong because we're not going fast. Right. And um, and uh, we have to understand that uh, that um, yeah, we won't always get it right, but we have to do it much better than than what we're doing. And um, and it's even like even oncologists are a very important part of the problem because. Uh, they want data that shows that the drug is um, is highly effective, and and safe and things like that. Um, and uh, but they they don't fully understand that um, uh, how that translates into things slowing down. And also uh, all of the oncologists and uh, other professionals that are, for example, members of uh, IRBs uh, that are destined that are intended to keep things safe but they massively slow things down, that um, right. uh, they do a whole bunch of things that, um, uh, that just need to be done much better. And I think as a clinician or as a, you know, a family member who has a medical background, the hardest thing to say to somebody is, is like, yeah, you know, there are things that are in phase one, two or three that could probably help you, but they're not approved yet. You know, you just see somebody be deflated by that. I mean, as a clinician, that must really weigh on you. Uh, that, that's right. And also, not only that, but it's in clinical trials, but you cannot get on the clinical trial. Right. You don't meet eligibility criteria. And the eligibility criteria are massively dysfunctional. Right. And, uh, and they, they don't make sense. And, uh, and, they, uh, and, and they need to change. Uh, things like excluding patients with brain metastases from uh, clinical trials of anti-cancer drugs for lung cancer. That makes absolutely no sense at all. There's no bit of actual hard science that backs it uh, or that uh, that uh, would um, makes it that justifies it. 
uh, or that um, people with prior malignancies cannot get on a clinical trial. Right. Uh, they, they've got a new malignancy. Uh, that makes no sense at all. And there's just a whole bunch of them uh, that make no sense. And they uh, they just slow things down while denying people access who who would very much, who would desperately like to go on the clinical trial, but they cannot because of the eligibility criteria. Yeah, I've had other experts in other fields say, these clinical trial patients, I don't see patients like this. I see patients with comorbidities, you know, who have this, that, and the other thing. And some of these clinical trials pick these, you know, sort of perfect patients. I totally hear you on that. So I want to go back to one point, and I'm not skewed either way because I'm married to a family full of Canadians. So just a few points that you make you love both systems and just a few points that make you hate both systems, if you will. So that the, 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 the thing with the Canadian system uh, is that um, and nobody gets, gets bankrupted by it um, uh, so, that, um, so that you get, um, you get access uh, if you can get access. Uh, the big problem is that um, they, they, um, the Canadian system uh, manages costs by creating bottlenecks uh, and just okay. by... Uh, by uh, having shortages of different things that you have to jump through hoops to get things for your patients. Um, uh, and uh, so that uh, it takes everything a little bit too long when it comes to cancer. When, it's, when it comes to family medicine, it, it probably works better than the United States because uh, because there are um, there are actually more primary care physicians in Canada per unit population in the United States, whereas there are far more specialists in the United States than there are in Canada. Uh, so, that, uh, so that there are some things that work better. Uh, but um, the the things that um, but it takes too long to approve new drugs, partly because the companies don't apply to Canada until a year or more after they've got it apply uh, approved in the United States because it's got a much smaller population, um, and um, but also that takes much too long for the provincial governments to fund the new drugs, so it takes too long to access uh, new therapies. Uh, but if a patient is in the system, it works. People that uh, want to get uh, just good primary care, uh, the system overall works. Um, uh, in the United States, the, the big issue is, the, uh, again, insurance companies uh, that, um, again, uh, can you get insurance? And uh, the reason that, that the United States ranks 49th in, in life expectancy just ahead of Albania is because of the number of young people that die, uh, who die of something that could have been prevented. Right. Uh, so the, the fact that the United States has the, uh, one of the, the highest maternal death rates in the Western world one of the highest infant death rates in the Western world. Uh, that's because of uh, young people that tend to be uninsured. Um, and uh, so that once you reach age 65 in the United States, uh, Medicare is gold-plated. Uh, you will not get um, a better system than, uh, than, uh, than Medicare. Uh, but, uh, but until you get, get there, uh, you've got some major problems. Right. Um, and also the, the other thing in the United States is the fact that um, to get any, anything done, uh, that um, uh, your physician has to contact the insurance company to approve it first. Uh, so what it does, it means that the administrative health care costs in the United States are five times higher than they are in Canada per, per, per patient. And we always think about government being very inefficient, but this is one of the few areas where government is much more efficient right. than the private sector, uh, just because the the insurance system there uh, just um, uh, does uh, does not make sense and uh, is highly highly inefficient. Uh, also, like uh, for the uh, physicians in, uh, in the United States, they have to fill out uh, different forms for every different insurance company, uh, so you can't automate it. Uh, in Canada, uh, there's uh, just uh, one bill that calls in at the end of the month to uh, one insurer, and uh, and it's very, very fast, very efficient. I, I can just do it all online. As I see a patient, just click what the charges are going to be. Uh, that uh, that gets sent off, and um, and um, and so uh, in the average Canadian physician's office will be a bunch of physicians sharing it. 
and they'll have one receptionist and maybe one nurse to uh, to serve them all. You go into um, an American uh, right. um, physician's office, and there's all sorts of people running around. Most of them just dealing with the insurance uh, companies. Absolutely, uh, and that uh, that just uh, slows things down too much. Yeah, my PCP's office. I mean, I think you know you sort of start in your head counting. I mean, and having working in the emergency department, you know, the number of people who are coming down for you know issues about like the pharmacist person coming down and say this is on a formulary insurance form person so forth yeah i totally get that so i have like two questions left my first is is that at the end of your book you sort of talk about the future of treating cancer i know that you're now specializing mostly in advanced lung cancer um you can look at just that area or you can look at cancer in general but can you briefly tell us your vision of where you think as you said you're not a science fiction writer but where you think the future of oncology is going well, I think within five or 10 years, it's going to be much different than it is now, simply because right now it's a lot different than it was five or 10 years ago. And um, essentially, if we can imagine it, that it may be possible to do it. Uh, as an example, like right now, if somebody undergoes surgery uh, to remove a lung cancer, they may be sent to, to me for adjuvant chemotherapy afterwards to reduce the risk of it coming back. By five years from now, we won't be doing that. We'll be taking a blood sample. We'll be looking for circulating tumor cells. If we can find them, then we'll know that the patient has residual cancer after the surgery and they need treatment for that residual cancer. If we don't find them, they're probably cured. There's probably, there probably is no residual cancer. And so that, um, so that um, we, they probably will not need it. Uh, the um, uh, new, new uh, types of immunotherapy, so that, uh, so that um, uh, immunotherapy uh, well, until uh, 2014, I told the trainees that uh, immunotherapy has been about to cure cancer for the past 50 years. Yeah. I'm very skeptical about it. Uh, but then the immune checkpoint inhibitors came along, and they revolutionized things. Uh, uh, so they've had a greater impact than any drug uh, that we've had since this plant came out in the, in the late 1970s. Uh, and so that, uh, but we're right now we're only hitting two of the 13 immune checkpoints in the body um, with standard treatments. And I think that um, that over the next very few years, we'll have other things that will hit some of the other immune checkpoints that keep your immune system from attacking cells and uh, to be able to get them to attack uh, cancers that are now not managed by the current immunotherapies. I, I think that, um, that uh, there's something called bispecific T-cell engagers that are antibodies that one arm sticks to a tumor cell uh, and the other arm um, uh, sticks to an immune cell and brings them close together. Uh, I think that we'll uh, see a revolution in, in those that, uh, that it may even become possible to personalize therapies in the future that just taking your tumor, uh, looking at the antigens that your, your specific tumor has, uh, building a, a, a bispecific T-cell engager right then and there for you uh, that uh, will be very specific for your cancer that uh, that uh, will could be highly effective uh, uh, against it. Uh, the, um, uh, the side effects of treatment. Uh, the side effects, we're much better able to control that now than what we used to be. One of them that we're not yet good at controlling is fatigue. Uh, right. But that's, gonna, that, uh, that, that's just a matter of understanding it better and coming up with something that reduces the fatigue associated with anti-cancer therapies, because we're doing a lot better now against nausea and vomiting than we used to, uh, and uh, things like that. Uh, so so um, uh, like I, I tell my patients that every year I go to about five major international meetings, mm -hmm. uh, and um, every two months when I go to a new meeting, all the things that have happened just since the last meeting, uh, just, um, uh, just incredible. 
Or if you look at something like the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, right. it comes out once a week, and you look at the at the, the studies that are published there. Uh, about half of them are on uh, half the journal uh, are right. of the issues have something new on cancer, uh, something new on cancer. So it's happening very, very, very rapidly. It's amazing. And I really enjoyed reading your book. Full disclosure, I wasn't able to read all of it. Uh, the sections as an emergency medicine physician and also having a background in public health, there were certain parts of it that clearly interested me. I will definitely go back and read the other parts. So for folks who want to read this book, where can they get a copy of this? Uh, so again, it's called A Short Primer and Why Cancer Still Sucks. Uh, it works very well to just go on Amazon Books, and uh, then you can get either electronic hard copy or uh, like a paperback or a hardcover, uh, or you can um, uh, go to my website, whitecasterstillsucks.com, and that has uh, links to a bunch of other um, bookstores that are also, cause, uh, also selling uh, electronic versions of it. Well, Dr. Stewart, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I very much appreciate that you had me on, the, um, on your podcast. Thank you very much. And that's today's episode of the Special Spotlight. Thank you for joining. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. David J. Stewart, and to Daria Mora, Sean Mullen, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for another episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.